This podcast contains conversations about trauma, addiction, death, and other challenging subjects, and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from Drawn to a Story. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. And it's a place where I want us to be able to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. These days, the media, social media, films, TV, have become our experience of so many events that we, we don't actually know about personally. Living in a war zone or being an ambulance officer or being homeless, we, we watch documentaries to find out about these, these other experiences. And we watch a reality TV show and we get a little bit of an insider understanding of what their lives are like. But we turn off the TV and we go back to our own life. And we think we understand, but I don't think we do because we don't fully absorb it because it's not our lived experience. We dip in briefly. We might feel some empathy because we see their work as good. But what about if the person before us challenges us because their experiences are outside society's accepted norm of good behavior, whatever that is, whatever culture defines what that is. I believe in this moment that we other people, we think it's a safe place to be for ourselves, but it's also a blindness and a blindness that denies us from all belonging to ourselves and also to each other. And this is why I've invited today's guest. Now, I've known Harvey for about 14, 15 years. And to me, he's someone who has lived a really interesting life. And I always come away with loads more questions and things I want to talk about. Harvey is also someone who has served a prison sentence. He's got that insider experience that can challenge us and that we might choose to ignore because it's uncomfortable for us. But stay with us, stay with me now. I know at the end of this conversation that you will change for the better. And I know I do every time I talked with Harvey. So I'll bring Harvey in. Welcome, Harvey. It's lovely to have you with, with me on the show today. Hi, Kat. As you know, and some of my listeners will, will be starting to know, I'm really keen to be starting to help people see people and actually learn about other people's experiences and the things that we think are outside our sphere. So for the listeners who don't know you, can you tell me a little bit of your backstory and kind of essentially how you ended up serving a prison sentence? Because I don't imagine it's something that people set out to, to want to do particularly. I think the background really uh, stems from mental health problems. Um, I It looks fairly likely at this point, I'm in my mid-30s now, it looks quite likely that I've always had ADHD and I've always been on the autistic spectrum somewhere. But because of these things in part, and you know, there's lots of issues of mental health support, it's easy to fall through the gaps, especially if your condition is one that makes you forget you have appointments for six months mm, or mm. 
lose your home occasionally or disappearing around different parts of the country unexpectedly. Mm. Um, so I've been seeking mental health support for about 10 years, I think, mm. maybe longer mm. than that. And it ended up on, here, here's a box of antidepressants. Mm. Every time, if, it, if they don't work, take more of them. Which, as it turns out, with my kind of brain, is probably quite a bad idea and makes mm. you probably more impulsive. Um, mm. So the other background to this is that... Uh, I was brought up in a quite unusual background. My mm-hmm. parents were part of a very small Christian religious group, which a local newspaper called a clut on at least mm-hmm. one occasion. <laughs> you know, we didn't have TV or access to media, and we didn't really communicate with people outside of the very small group, um, very much in a kind of Christian back-to-basics. So I grew up um, not really feeling like I fitted anywhere, not really having... A lot of time for established authority or the standard way of doing things but most importantly I also grew up having learned to educate myself and getting very into things like climate science I, I got into this mindset that the wheels on our current civilizational paradigm are going to fall off at some point and uh, it wouldn't be very good if you don't know how to deal with it so I ended up for years being into, you know, my, my hunting, shooting and fishing. I, I made sure I knew how to gather food myself, knew how to live outdoors and millions of different things. By the time things really got to the point where I ended up in trouble with the law, I'd spent about 10 years slowly going deeper and deeper down this kind of cognitive rabbit hole. I probably convinced myself um, that laws didn't really apply to me particularly. Mm. Um, mm. So I'd also got into a space pretty obsessed with these ideas, which is an easy thing to get into. Mm. Probably more so if you're coming from a kind of religious background. I, I was saying to someone the other day, there's this, um, you can come out of religion and replace, there's the cognition that I have privileged information that you are all going to hell because I know that this is right. Yeah. So I, everything I say is right and I'm right of everyone. You get very used to that kind of fluffy certainty. Yeah. Well, And, and it's a comfort, isn't it, as well? That, it, it's very yeah. much a comfort. Mm. And the, the modern world, you don't have certainty. And mm. dogma is a very dangerous double-edged sword because it gives mm. you this fluffy cotton wool feeling. You are completely right about everything. But it also gives you makes you trapped in your dogma, mm. trapped in decisions that you make because of that. I, I said, you know, the danger is you replace this idea that you're all going to hell, so I'm the rightest person on the planet and everything I do is right, with you're all going to die in a climate apocalypse. Yeah. And therefore, everything I say is, you know, it, it's this double trap of dogma. Mm. Um, it's like, what it truth lead... are you going to tell yourself? <laughs> yeah, and you, it can lead to some very dark places. And in mm. my case, I probably constantly thought about ways to acquire small game in an emergency mm. you know one day i ended up going to an antique shop where i used to buy old you know like bows and fishing rods and stuff and mm. was offered a very small antique target pistol so i bought it you know 50 pounds it was like oh hurrah i should mm. stick this in under a brick in my shed and save it till the end times being an adhd inveterate shed tinkerer what i actually did was manufacture some ammunition and fired it at a dartboard messed around with it a bit mm. obviously being in a small village and having adhd and being on quite mm. a lot of ssri mm. antidepressant medication i wasn't 
covert about this. And eventually the inevitable happened and I got dawn raided by the police with guns and dogs and uh, hauled off after about six months of going through the legal ins and outs. I wasn't put mm. under any restrictive conditions. Even the courts were very much of the opinion it was a non-intent thing. They didn't recognise a danger to society or anything. I actually have a MAPA rating, which is multi-agency public protection all right. zero which means basically you know yeah you're not you're not just, a threat in that yeah, sense yeah which was useful in some ways i guess but is it mm. but you know the law is the law and obviously i totally understand why we have restricted mm. firearms laws in this country and i think if i hadn't spent 10 years on the wrong medication i might very well have not done not made that yeah. impulsive choice to yeah. buy the thing when the police turned up and all this kind of unraveled were you surprised or was it something that for you was a, a perfectly ordinary scenario of what you were doing? Like, were you able to see outside of yourself and suddenly see well, what you like done? being dawn raided by, by mm. a shed load of police with dogs and guns and stuff to point out the fact that things might have got a little bit off-piste. But, like, it was really interesting because this kind of coincided with the point in my life where I, I finally got to realise that I might have ADHD. Mm. So that was interesting. Yeah, and I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about your upbringing and then then these this ADHD and, and autism as well there's a potential for you to slip through the, the gaps. And it's like, how do you live in society? Like when you left the organisation that you grew up in, how do you start to fit into a society that culturally is so different from where you've come from? Well, honestly, never, never really sussed that out. And I mean, mm. you know, like the question is, do I not fit in because I've spent my entire background in a, a clut, as the newspapers mm. call it? <laughs> or do I not fit in because I have so, a tendency to depression? Because as seems more likely, I have two fairly major undiagnosed mm. mental health problems, mm. as a result of which I have a very chaotic life and get mm. depressed about that. If your experience is very out of the... Don't get me wrong, I'm a white cisgender male living mm. in the UK. It's not like mm. I've got a particularly hard deal here. <laughs> but it is very hard to establish enough of a kind of you know kind of touchstone with mm. normality yeah where's your you baseline start looking mm. at what might be the reason you're so far out of whack and indeed find some support for it these days i haven't taken mental health medication since i was actually arrested and i'm probably a lot better and more functional as a result um mm. I basically, these days, I kind of eat and I sleep and I smoke the occasional roll-up, maybe drink a beer every three weeks, and I work very hard and I raise my children. And mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm by no means, you know, like at the top of the achieving tree, but uh, I seem to be managing well, after a fashion. Yeah, but I, I would question that because I think given your upbringing and what you are living with from a mental health perspective, I think even though... These, all these things have happened, you are th an image of success because you're living a life, as you say, you're raising your children, you're, you're working, you're bringing money in, all, like, all of that stuff. It brings me back to, to what is success and what is achievement. It doesn't matter that there's a, an external idea of success if, if you're living well and doing all these things compared to where you've come from. It's the nice thing about having this little family unit and small people who wake up mm. and need things doing all the time is mm. as long as no one's actually covered in 
poo or crying, <laughs> you, you reckon you're winning, you know. Um, I, I think having a family makes a big difference. But, mm. but really, the only reason I'm able to do this is because I have an incredibly supportive wife. Mm. <laughs> she's, yeah. she's very nice and very together and mm. forgives me for things like forgetting the thing she told me to do 14 seconds ago and then coming in and asking her what she wants me to do and you know it's like <laughs> it's one thing if someone just forgets yeah what it, I know. You know it's like can you put the washing out yes dear of course I will yeah. disappears for 10 minutes comes back can I do anything <laughs> for you darling have you put the washing out no I'm just interested in that space between what's where's the the extremes of normality what I hate that word normal normality but there's one boundary where there's the law and you were seen to step outside of the law and you got punished for that and then there's like this other other side of what we accept as normal or not normal and I'm interested in that space that the diversity that comes with that and actually can we just continue to keep pushing that bandwidth out so that we just see more people and that whatever normal is is much more expansive and there's a place for everybody rather than having these really tight edges of of like good bad difficult easy like whatever i don't know i I don't that's not really even a question it's just a thought (laughs) from the point of view of like someone who's got one of these conditions or someone who has Mm. to live with someone who has these conditions and i mean i've done a lot of reading over the past five years and trust me you know like having a partner who's got my condition or being someone who's got my condition Mm. can lead to some pretty heavy stuff you know like Mm. it's it's very bad for things like earning money or functioning in the real world or having a having a sensible quiet normal life you know Mm. there's a Mm. lot of real suffering people Mm. go through both from being in relationships or Mm. being parented by Mm. people like this so from the point of view of someone who's living with or affected by these conditions the, the definition of whether it's a problem or not is whether you can function. If something really grabs your attention, you can actually focus harder and longer than most normal people, Mm. which means that if you play to your strengths, you can achieve at quite a high level. Partly as a result of growing up with no TV, but Mm. I speed read. My wife was watching me the other day. She was watching my eyes, and apparently what I do is I read each page three times in about two seconds. Wow. And what I do, what I realise I do, I read all the big words... And then mm. I go back and read all the filler words. Oh, wow. And then I go back and read all the other stuff. Yeah. And then it goes kind of bing. And I've got yeah. the whole thing like a scanned yeah. PDF in my frontal yeah. cortex. And that's incredible. I mean, that skill for for certain jobs and certain, certain things to do in life is incredible. It's very good if I want to learn things in a hurry. It's, it's very good for stuff like that, um, mm. and it's uh, it's very good for reading for pleasure. If you're interested in something with, with my condition, you, you can function at a very high level, mm-hmm. but the flip side is if it bores you, you cannot function at all. Mm. So I had an interesting a few years ago is on leaving prison. I worked for a company called Timpson in the UK, which have a really revolutionary thing about they, they employ a lot of prison leavers and they have them running their shops with a very high level of autonomy and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And they get all sorts of awards for this. Um, mm. And for the first three years, when I was learning every one of 15 different disciplines from shoe mm-hmm. repair to repairing expensive watches, I was functioning at quite a high level. And mm-hmm. then I realised I had learned everything and immediately turned into a piece of wet Switched off, wall, yeah. Um, and had to quit and go back into the building trade mm. for a couple of years. It turned out what I was really interested in 
was engineering, where you have to achieve high precision things in the real world. So I've mm. now got an entry level job at an engineering firm where they let me play with all the kit, which for me it means I've got at least five to ten years ahead of me where I won't yeah. run out of things to learn. Absolutely. And, and, and therefore be able to continue functioning at quite a high level whilst yeah. earning money. And that must feel like a really stabilizing influence in that you know that that's there and that it is something that you can you know you're going to stick to and gives you that stability it really is and everyone mm. at work can't quite understand why i'm enjoying it so mm. much mm. and why i'm so excited about all the minutiae of it but it's because it's this joy of having a big subject in front of me um well you're stimulated the problem constantly. is with this mm. is if you are a normal adult and you're trying to go through your career curve is you get to a level that's reasonable mastery of your subject and then you completely crash mm. so then mm. you have to find something else you do that yeah. for three years and then you completely crash mm. and you end up you know like 10 or 20 years into your career or maybe after a whole lifetime still at this kind of three-year entry level it's incredibly tormenting and depressing and it's mm. you know that's why you end up with depression because you have put a huge amount of effort in, still back where you were when you were 21 yeah. years old. Yeah, exactly. And the, the world is not kind to that. You feel like you get bypassed by all of your peers and uh, you feel like you're not good enough. And particularly when you are trying to raise a family and provide mm. and stuff, mm. that's a big problem. I think, yeah. I think you'll find a lot of male adult suicide is because they don't feel like they're providing enough or they're good mm. enough. For men, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a big that deal. I've often thought that men need a movement like feminism, but for men, like they, they I would they, totally agree with you. I yeah. really think they do. And if you then look at, I mean, when we've spoken before, you've talked about the the level of deprivation that you came across in in the prison system. And I heard on the radio a few weeks ago on Radio Four someone talking about that as a society, uh, it was an, he was an ex prisoner actually saying that they wouldn't need to rehabilitate if people weren't debilitated in the first place. And, oh, and that's very true. And I was just thinking about men particularly. Uh, I think a lot of men are are struggling to find their identities and, and that something like this would really help. I'd just be interested in what your view of that would be, particularly in relation to the depth of deprivation that you encountered in prison. I'm speaking to someone at the moment who had an awful, awful upbringing, utterly tragic, he, he really never had a chance. Most of the people I met really had very little choice to mm. try anything else. Acquisitive crime is for survival when you mm. don't have an education or anywhere mm -hmm. thing in the normal mm -hmm. And no one you've ever known, none of your parents or extended family have ever had a straight job or anything mm. like that. You feel like that's not open to you. And yeah. also, it just plain isn't open to you. Because no. realistically, if you don't have qualifications and can't present yourself in a certain mm, way it's inc yeah incredibly um, difficult and, and people end up in in terrible states maybe they end up with a criminal record and that makes mm. things a, a lot worse because we have this ut utopian idea often that you like you do the crime you're punished and you come out of prison and you reintegrate into life on the outside but it, it's not that simple and it's like you can't you can't reintegrate into society if you've never really been part of it in the first place Reintegration, even for me, was very, very difficult. It's hard to describe. I, I, for several years after I left prison, I could not go out at night, because partly because I'd spent a long time locked up with people who went out one night, 
And as a result of that, through probably really not much fault of their own, ended up mm. with a 10 or 15 year prison sentence. Yeah. Destroyed their life. I know someone who was, someone tried to rob him at knife point and he took the knife off them, threw it in the river and punched them in the head. And as a result, they got brain damage and he got 12 years. Yeah. Well, life, that's just another whole avenue of life that you weren't expecting, isn't it? No, and, and you know, in that case, if your sentence is over four and a half years, which mine was, it's a five-year mandatory minimum, and his certainly was, that's never spent, that's never off your record. You permanently can't travel to most countries in the world. Mm. You know, they're, they're a huge, lifelong thing. Mm. You just cannot put back right after that. Mm. And what the other thing you realise is, because you've met people who you know, we're a 16-year-old in a street gang and we're trying to keep up with the with the big guys. Then they knifed someone on the street, not because they even really wanted to. Just You suddenly realise that walking about when people are drunk is really dangerous. Yeah, you've seen the, the other the, side. You the know. skinny little guy at the back yeah. might knife you because he wants to fit in yeah. you know, and then have yeah. his life destroyed, but you'd be dead. So, yeah. you know. So how was that transition for you going from your childhood to then like obviously having some adult life and then that transition of going inside and, and starting to be aware of other people's lives and their experiences how do you how do you cope with that what was surprising to me was that before i went away i you know you have this image in your head there'll be some huge tattooed good dark guy down the end you'll want to you know steal all your biscuits and knife you for the bread. Yeah. And what you realise is actually those aren't the dangerous people. The dangerous people are the little skinny mm. ones who look like they're really having a tough time of it. Because they're the ones who might actually kill someone for five quid. They mm. need five quid to get through the day, psychologically. Yeah, yeah. The real danger is in the broken people. The people who are, you know, permanently undernourished. It's like uh, Hannah Arendt's thing, the banality of evil. You know, you see all this thing about, you know, those big scary looking Satanists. That isn't where evil and harm tends to come in the world. It mm. tends to come from someone who's just feels small and weak mm. and has no self-esteem, is just desperately trying to claw their way through another 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. And maybe they freak out and do, you know, but yeah. the, the Being horrible on the things edge. Mm. that you see happening. You know, I, I knew one guy who was really one of the least pleasant people I, I met in the whole system, but he was involved in drugs and he used to torture people and mm. sometimes kill them. And very clearly, from his point of view, that was a good way to spend his time. And yet he, you know, he was involved in drug dealing in the prison and I had to share a cell with this guy for some time. It was horrible. All the worst people in the entire, you know, there's a huge range of people in it, but all the worst people were in the cell the whole time. Mm. There'd be phones that were kept in horribly unpleasant places. I'd have to listen to these people abusing their families mm. at home to get mm. money for drugs. Mm. And it was horrible. The most ghastly human experience i've ever had mm. but do you know what he was doing that for no why so he'd make maybe a, a grand or so a year over this and he'd send it to his parents so they could have a holiday wow really yeah. <laughs> that's interesting isn't it oh that's giving me goosebumps there's a strange duality in that isn't there there yeah. All these horrible, horrible things, these mm. drug-based, acquisitive crimes, these torturings, murderings, people were by and large doing that mm. just so they could buy their mum a bunch mm. of flowers, just so they could get a little bit closer to what they thought mm. a normal life was like. 
Yeah, and that brings me back to like the whole purpose of this podcast about actually seeing people and and despite the horrific things that people might do, there's reasons that people end up how they end up and that there is still most circumstances there's still this this human person inside that's actually trying to get on with life and trying to live those kind of extreme circumstances for you on coming out of prison would you say that you're better or worse for having been inside one thing I'm much better for is what prison is, is something you can't actually afford in real life unless you're very wealthy, which is to have full room and board and mm. a lot of time to do whatever mm. you want. As long as you can do that in a small room full of fairly edgy people, you know. Yeah. In my case, that was writing and music and art, and I did rather a lot of that. But also mm. I've, I've been an artist and a musician, and I've tried mm. doing various things like this my whole life, but I've also had to hold down a job and survive. Uh, which means you get maybe a couple of hours a week to do that, as opposed to 40 to 80 hours a week. And what I got, what I found, was that in a stable environment where you get up at the same time every day and everything mm. is the same all the time, my condition is much more manageable. Yeah, interesting. And I can actually achieve at quite a high level. Now, mm. there's no way on earth I could have ever created those conditions for myself, mm. short of winning the lottery. What it enabled me to see was maybe I don't need medication. Mm. Maybe I just need a very, very boring life. <laughs> yeah, know? a routine that, that you know where you are and what, what's yeah. going on. Which which I, I should, should very much stress to anyone listening who has issues with, you know, these kind of conditions is it's amazing what a mm. stable background and setup mm. will do for you you know if you ever you, the, the constant tendency as a human is to be like ah oh, i'm not doing well enough it's not big and fast mm. or shiny enough mm. i must throw it all away and try something else but that's yeah. the exact thing that destroys you because mm. you need a sense of group and you need support structures and routines mm. to function mm. and give your life meaning as a human yeah absolutely um, and every time you try and make a big break to catch up with your idea of what the societal norm or achievement should be, you fall further down the ladder until eventually, mm. you know, I've been homeless for long periods of time. Like, we're not talking begging on the street, we're talking living in a survival hammock whilst working full time. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that by choice for more than a year of my life at various mm. points. Mm. Um, but that takes you that little bit further down the ladder till suddenly all you have is a survival hammock. Um, mm. And then it's very hard to get back to normality. In every case, I've been a, I've had family support, my my wife as well. In the last ten years, I've always had help to get back to something approaching normal for a few months to mm. the point where I can then go back to functioning like a normal yeah. human being. So many people don't have no. that. So you'd say that's the critical thing for you is that you did have absolutely had support and and that normality is is what puts you back and and healthy i guess don't get me wrong nothing's a silver bullet and mm. you know i still struggle on a daily basis with mm. a wide variety of functional issues but um yeah it turns out having a boring life mm. is, is very very good for me mm. you kind of joke before about your level of achievement and what you're doing but that brings me back to me talking about how we judge ourselves about what is success or not success. So f for you, that sounds like that's a really incredible insight and thing that, that you're better for, for having like, and, and you can live this stable life that actually 
that is successful to me. I mean, how do you feel about that? In this paradigm where I'm living in the real world and I'm not in a prison, I don't need to achieve some kind of ivory tower thing mm. to keep myself vaguely okay with myself. But what's interesting is when I was in prison, and believe me, like the problem with prison isn't the environment or the people. The problem is knowing 24 hours a day that you have destroyed the lives of everyone else in your family and mm. it's your fault and you can do mm -hmm. nothing about it. Mm. And that gets really bad when like a family member dies or yeah. your partner has a miscarriage or has a child and you can't mm. help them. That is the punishment of prison. Mm. And I don't want to limit this. No. People talk about, oh, you've got a nice... I saw a, a thing on Facebook the other day about how prisoners have it better than pensioners. You know, they get bigger rooms and a PlayStation mm. and all this stuff. Mm. The punishment of knowing that you have screwed over everyone in your life yeah. and for the next four years you can't do anything to fix it and you've just got to watch them suffer through grill mesh you know that is a very extreme punishment yeah. no one talks about it even in prison even that you you never discuss it but everyone can see it behind everyone else's eyes yeah. and it is like acid dripping on your soul it is a indescribably horrible thing a lot of the people who work there say you're not in here to be punished being mm. here is your punishment don't get me wrong it, prison mm. can be very bad as well you know fighting and drugging and you know it's not a pleasant place to be in but the real damage is the fact that your family suffers because of you i was thinking earlier about the kind of victimless crime concept and admittedly uh like depending on what someone does that ends up with them getting inside there is there there is there really ever a victimless crime then because it's no, because your family is victim i mean yeah. possibly a, a, a crime in which you don't get caught for mm. but if you get punished for a crime everyone else suffers yeah yeah and exactly. whether you're suffering or not that your your family still suffer because they think you might be suffering um you know and that, that mm. is corrosive it's, it's impossible for me to put into words how extreme that suffering mm. is mm. for everyone but what what i'd like to make a point about here when we're talking about success is one of the ways i was able to survive several years of that is through prison education for example i had an incredibly inspirational arts teacher and they have a project called the Kersler Prize, because the Kersler Trust and the Kersler Prize. And this is a national institution that holds uh, competitions annually for prison art um, in many, many disciplines. And they exhibited at the South Bank Centre. And for me, that was survival for over mm -hmm. a year and a half. A big sculpture project, and I kind of won the thing. And uh, that gave me a purpose and a way of defining myself that wasn't purely about the negative. It was absolutely transformative. After that, I then got into music and teaching music, and I taught this guy music from scratch, and we had a band mm. together and recorded an album. That was transformative for both of us. It, it keeps you surviving, and I met many, many people in there who had done the same thing. The cost of prison education is pretty low, considering mm. it, it costs more than a £1,000 a week to keep someone inside. And maybe prison education might cost a, f a few thousand pounds per person per year. But the transformative effect of mm. it is huge. I knew people, you know, particularly in the context of people doing life sentences, I, I met a lot of, I ended up in a DCAT prison, which is, um, you know, the one where you can walk around outside and, yep. uh, 
you know, they, they're relatively relaxed. But I met a lot of people who were finishing life sentences there. These are people who, by and large, have killed someone. They're pretty, generally, sounds very weird, I know, but they're generally quite easy to get along with. They've had 15 years to do nothing mm. but work on redefining. Yeah, so work on themselves. Wrong, so... cuts both ways somewhere. Yeah. Some of the most enlightened people I've met mm. were people finishing off life sentences. Mm. They were people who maybe in their late teens had been in a terrible lifetime hole and been in serious drug issues and had, for whatever reason, during a mental health breakdown, snapped and killed mm. someone. And then had had 15 years educating themselves and they were going back into the world. Really, you know, the criminal justice system is a blunt instrument. It has to be by its very nature. The world is complex and laws have to be binary. It, it cannot be a perfect tool in every case. One, one thing I, I, I really came out of, it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good tool for doing what it is required to do. And it might be keeping people out of society when they're not safe to be in it. And it, yeah. it might be giving people a couple of years of a structured environment so they can realise what they could be. For that to work, there has to be really transformative and illuminating education. If you think of someone who, maybe they've been an addict their whole life, maybe they have a habit that costs 50k a year, they're going to go and commit crime to fund that habit. Say they go and steal, break into someone's house and steal a TV. That TV might be worth three or four thousand pounds. They'll probably get fifty quid for it. So they'll have to do five hundred thousand pounds worth of damage and crime yeah. to fund that fifty k habit. And that hits everyone's premiums. That hits mm. people's lifestyles. That mm. the cost to society of someone being left in that pit to just live with their habit is huge everyone pays for it anyway the the for sake of maybe ten thousand pounds intervention on a mm. form of education that would yeah. allow them to redefine themselves as a writer as an engineer i've seen mm. this happen in, in mm. hundreds of cases completely life-changing and what it means is that person then goes on to pay tax you will never get a hundred percent success rate but the cost of intervention is so small and the mm. benefit of the intervention is so large it really feels like we're missing a trick here i wonder how families who ha have been on the end of uh someone's crime and it has completely changed their lives i wonder how they would feel about someone getting that second chance or that chance to to educate themselves and have a life i've often thought that if if i was that person that something happened to would I be wanting someone to to kind of have a really horrible experience in prison, or would I want them to be have this op these opportunities? And I honestly can't. I mean, you, you never know until you're there, right? But um, well, what but I would I... say is that you may rest assured they will have a horrible time in prison, even if yeah. they have these opportunities. I think that's the thing that I'm the way I am is that. I do firmly believe that if, like you've just said, if you can actually have a chance and uh, learn some new skills and get educated and, and and then potentially reintegrate, you then actually, if you have kids, you're, if it's a, a habitual thing that's happened in within generations of your family, there's a chance for that to be broken and actually start to change the pattern of behaviour. So I... I kind of I kind of see it both ways. I can't speak to how one would feel if mm. someone 
if, if you were in a position where you needed someone to be punished because of how it impacted you. But what, what I would say is that there is a big perception that ah, prisoners are sitting there on their three meals a day and everything. Mm. That's, that's dis- we're, we're social animals, mm. you know. There's a wonderful writer called Steve Peters um, mm. who wrote The Chimp Paradox, which is uh, you know, a kind of modelling of our behaviour as primates and what our yeah. social needs are. We are social animals and mm. we need to feel... One of our biggest, you know, and this is where you talk about otherness as well, one of our biggest metrics for is everything okay, am I okay, is where are we fitting in our, in our group as a town, in, in mm. our family. What, what I said earlier about the experience of prison being corrosive is it, is it is a permanent, very real reminder that you are not okay, you are not mm. a good part of the human race. Um, and there is there is a huge amount of psychic pain from that, and it doesn't matter whether you're going to the gym every day or you have a PlayStation in your room or you get to eat food. That those yeah. things are much lower down the the scale of uh, of human. Even in prison, no one no one speaks about why prison is bad you'd all go you'd all just go and top yourselves that evening do you know what i mean yeah yeah so obviously if in prison no one speaks about it i've got friends who i speak very openly about even we didn't ever (laughs) mention Mm. quite how soul crushing it was to Mm. each other yeah you know and these are people i talk about literally every subject under the sun we haven't had Mm. done through my sentence and after my sentence I think the issue is, from the outsider's view, is if even prisoners in a cell together for a year don't mention why it hurts being mm. there, the chances of the general public ever ever are hearing about it are slim to nil. When you Clue. come out into yeah. the world, you tell the funny anecdotes. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, it's like, I've got a good prison story. This is, you know, yeah. It's like, yeah. and you do not ever... I, I, I worked no. with someone recently who had also gone through a similar experience in many years ago. And we were saying, you cannot communicate to another human being who has mm. not gone through that No, why it is traumatic. And I, I still don't think either of us actually mentioned... In, out loud why it was traumatic yeah um uh, uh, but uh, this is another issue with acclimatizing mm. to post-sentence life no you do not speak the truth about it you do, no. do not communicate that there's no one who you could communicate to so obviously no one's going to want to hear oh i went to prison it was a really bad time like you're whining about you got punished <laughs> for doing something bad yeah, you know, there, yeah there's yeah, no yeah. space in which you can talk about no. that how do you deal with that then what what do you do with that does you try not to think about it in the great yeah. English tradition of uh, yeah. English masculine tradition, yeah. Mm. But but it does occasionally catch you by surprise. One of the recurring nightmares I have is that I'm in prison and there is, for some reason, someone's put contraband in my cell, mm. and as a mm. result, I'm not going to be able to see my family again. And I, I would probably still qualify myself as somewhat traumatized by the experience. Yeah. I only spent two and a half years actually in prisons and mm. two and a half years on probation. But that, that definitely left a mark. I think that's the thing about compassion for people as well. The punishment side of things is that we, something happens to us or to someone in, and society's thing is that you punish that person, they go, um, they go to prison. But what we don't see as the broader society is the reality of what that is within you when you're coming out. It is like your mental health issues with ADHD and and autism and things like that. Because we can't see it, we don't think the person's being 
punished but it's it's almost like your own your own punishment to yourself because like we don't see what what you're dealing with well you know the the guy who he hit for well, maybe he was trying to be robbed at knife point at the mm. time but he still hit the guy and the guy mm. still got brain damage and that guy has mm. family and you know i'm sure they would want the guy to be punished severely mm. for causing brain damage to someone mm. but there, there's this very prevalent idea that prisoners have it easy and to be honest prisons will tell you that Mm. You know, prisoners will tell you all day, oh, I'm living at large, I've got the Xbox, I've you know, yeah. saved all my noodles up and made an Indian meal out of it. But well, that's you know, all kind of like cocktail stuff, isn't it? It's bravado. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's because they cannot bring themselves to speak mm. honestly about the damage it does to you. If we're talking about otherness and we're talking about the fact that, that implies that feeling othered is a cause of suffering mm. psychologically, you don't get no more othered than being locked up and having the government yeah. spend hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah you have a bad time because you're absolutely. not good enough to be out in the real well, world you know? ab- absolutely and then and then that's like compounded because when you get out you're not able to talk about it because people don't understand unless it's someone else who's no. experienced so that whether that's right or wrong I don't, I don't know but i would probably make the point that prison's definitely an unpleasant thing to go mm. through and mm. that no one will ever very i i, I very much doubt any anyone else is going to run around flying that flag at the moment you know? no no exactly exactly i wanted to ask you um as we've been talking around kind of other othering and compassion and things like that one of the things that i do a lot and talk a lot about in my work with draw to story is about identity and belonging and truly seeing people so that we all kind of belong a bit better and not even fit because fit implies that you have to change belonging is to me that it allows you to be you in a broader context so what would you say to people who might judge you for your experiences who may see you or who think that you're a bad person or think that because you've been in prison you're this or you're that like what would you actually say let's let's be real here there's there's no strong evidence that I'm not a bad person. <laughs> my wife would say I'm probably a clinical narcissist, amongst other things. Um, and I have made many mistakes and done many mm. bad things. You know, I'm not, I'm not looking to be like, I'm a wonderful person who just no. had some bad shit happen to me. Mm. I'm probably quite a crappy person. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like the, the final analysis here. Um, but what concerns me is there's this, there's this narrative, there's two narratives about prison. There's one that it's all, you know, generally on the left, that it's it, it's a cruel and unusual punishment mm-hmm. and, you know, it's totally inhumane and there is some truth in that. And there's the one more on the right and in the tabloids that, you know, prisoners have got all their food and they've got their yeah. PlayStation. Too soft. The wife and, of Riley yeah. and it doesn't do any difference. Mm. Both of those are very wrong in mm. a great variety of ways. There is a lot of good about the UK's criminal justice system it's an imperfect system we've only been trying to do it for a few hundred years mm. it takes 30 years to change public policy so mm. there's only, uh, we're only talking you know like double digit generations of iterative improvement on an mm. abstract concept of justice you know yeah, like yeah. You, go, you don't go out and pick out a lump of justice out of the ground and no. just shave a bit <laughs> off it justice no. is an abstract idea yeah. we've been trying as humans to gradually get to by yeah, evolve and error. And, yeah. um, and what I would say is that the UK criminal justice system is considering that's the case pretty damn effective like it mm. ain't perfect it's mm. definitely not perfect there is abuses at both ends of the systems mm. You know, there there are some guards who abuse prisoners. There are many prisoners who 
abuse the system, but it's it's pretty impressive. And we, we shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, mm, but at mm. the same time, anyone who says prison is not a punishment or that prisoners mm. have it easy is is deeply wrong as well. Don't get me wrong, there are a few people who literally just identify themselves, I am a criminal, you know, mm. well, you know I'm going to get up and do some crime, I'm going to go to mm. prison for a bit, it's like a boys club, hang out with the other criminals. I am prepared to admit there might be a, you know, one, two percent of people who go through prison, it's just like, mm. oh, it's a couple of years, put your feet up time, you know. Yeah. But we live in an imperfect world, and neither of those two extremes of the received wisdom about it are, are true. So I suppose that's what I'd say to people. Yeah. No, I think that that's really interesting, and that's what I'd hoped that this conversation would bring out, is to, to be able to actually challenge some of our biases challenge some of our things that we want to believe that actually might not be true and I know like I said in the beginning I I, I always enjoy talking to you because there's always perspectives that you make me think about and things that I might not necessarily even want to hear but but it's not my lived experience so I can't um I can have an opinion but I can't comment on the reality of that and that's why I want wanted this conversation with you to to get that reality and to, to try and help spread compassion a bit more really to everybody and understand what what real life really is for a lot of people as we sum up this finish up this podcast any words of wisdom or advice or i don't know about wisdom um but my advice to someone who maybe has family in the system or in the system themselves lord knows yeah, there's mm-hmm. quite a chance someone's able to listen to this on a phone that's been stuck in an orifice for the last couple of days somewhere (laughs) um my advice would be to take the opportunity of the time because you're never going to get that much time to learn and create and do things you wouldn't be have the time to do in normal life Mm. my advice to people who are outside of the system and want to learn more about it um would probably be to look because there's a lot of great research and there's a Mm. lot of you know there's a lot of people speaking out about things Mm -hmm. but also to take people's accounts of their experience with a grain of salt because Mm. people aren't going to be honest about how unpleasant it is they're not going to be honest about the bits where your soul seems to drip down the walls in the middle Mm. of the night while you stare Mm. at the ceiling for four years you know like uh, because that's very internal and men Mm. don't talk about that well anyway if that's something that's a deep inner experience then there's no reason anymore that you should share that than someone who hasn't been in prison. Like that's that's stuff that people are dealing with, and that that can remain personal. This is what you're trying to do, I know. But mm. just most of people's communication day to day is about what they think they should say. You know, it's mm. like, ah, oh, my car's broken down. Mm. You know, damn cars. I, I I spend a lot of time in very male environments, and I watch a lot of people communicate with all their friends for months and months and months without saying a single thing they actually truly mean or yeah. is actually true to them just because they're living in the paradigm of women we talk about you know or, you know we talk about things we talk about we talk about mm. cars and sport you know it's mm. like you know you, you see all this a lot and i know because I, I normally end up when people some reason i'm the kind of weird that people feel comfortable talking to me <laughs> and i might know perfectly well that, that person's actually their entire life is about this one huge mm. issue that they don't mm. tell anyone about mm. and I, I watch them and they're sat there talking about cars and having mm. a care in the world I'm just like I know this isn't what's really going it's on not, with you. No. 
guys could all talk about what's actually going on with you and maybe mm. get some catharsis out of it. Yeah, yeah. I know you I'm, damn well won't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's and it's. I think it's a big. I think it's one of the problems with the world at the moment is that people aren't. They're not brave enough to be vulnerable, and and actually, if you are vulnerable, it often allows someone else to be, and that that the magic kind of happens of those kind of conversations where people start to connect to each other properly rather than living at this surface level where they're not actually engaging properly. You know, there's this mm. big, very fractured thing at the moment where people are drawing up ever and tighter and higher lines around, you know, are you left, are you right, are you, mm. are you rich, are you poor, yeah. are you, you know, what's polarity this complete. debate? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's polarising. And there does come a huge risk where human interaction which is really the currency of, of our species becomes meaningless. Mm. And yeah. when that happens, how can you make decisions? How can you, how can mm. you fix anything? Absolutely. And, and in othering, we, we dehumanise people as well. And you see this all over the world at the moment and that and polarity. Dehumanising and Hannah Arendt and uh, mm. Mm. history of the 21st century, it doesn't end up in a good place, does it? No, no. And that I think that's part, as I keep coming back, this is absolutely why... I'm doing this and want to do this is to just try and fill in a, a few of those gaps that we just connect and we give each other permission to be vulnerable and to give compassion to people and we just start to understand people to allow it's like we it's almost like giving people permission to fail to not be perfect I don't really believe in failure it's not to me it's all about life lessons and teachings and learnings but it's there is something in there that we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge um, and to go into that space. And I think if the more we did, the, the, the better off we'd be personally. As you talk about that in, in a space about compassion and vulnerability and mm. people's feelings, but I suppose based on the last couple of sentences, what, what occurs to me more is this might be, you know, a move towards greater honesty might mm. be a very serious survival indicator for our species, for our species' yeah. ability to get mm. stuff done or make meaningful mm. decisions. And I don't want to sound like a, you know, kind of post-survivalist whack job here, although I probably am, let's face it. <laughs> lots of melty burny things going on in the world these days. Um, but, like, that could be a pretty handy thing, you know, like making good decisions and mm. having sensible discussions could be a yeah. pretty useful thing right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. It may be that what you're doing is what we need. Thanks for your vote of confidence. <laughs> With any luck, we'll we can uh, start to have a have the positive impact that I'm I'm hoping to have. We're going to have to wrap it up now. So I wanted to say thank you, Harvey, so much for your time and your your willingness to be be honest and talk and be open and share experiences that I know. Uh, have been painful for you and the people that you love and i just wanted to thank you for your time because time is incredibly precious and i'm so grateful to have the chance to have to have spoken with you so thank you very much uh, just one more thing if i can shout out mm. to my family and to my wife and my extended family and all the people who have tolerated and supported me if it wasn't for you i wouldn't be here and neither would our family and I want oh. to make that very clear to yeah. everyone who might be listening. Yeah, that's lovely. That's really lovely. Thank you. It's a perfect way to finish that off. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.